PR Pro Cannabis Media. Back to Cannabis Chat for Friday afternoon. We call it the Green Rush. The Business of Cannabis with David Rabinovitz. And we are joined by two friends of Pro Cannabis Media. I think I can go out on a limb and call Valerio Romano, a local attorney here in Massachusetts, a friend, as well as the CEO of LeafWire, Peter Vogel, who joins us now. Thank both of you to come for coming in here on a Friday afternoon. Appreciate it. Thanks. Happy to be here. Yep. Same here. Happy to be on the show. And now I'm going to throw it over to my co-host, David, because, you know, he's kind of a host in training. So this gives him a few seconds to set up some questions and talk topics for you guys. So, David, go ahead. Wait, what happened to David? What happened to his? Hey, turn your uh, darn microphone. You failed that test. Is on. You just failed the <laughs> test. Okay. <laughs> That's why I'm still in training, Jimmy. So we got two great guests here. We got Valerio, and anybody who's in the Massachusetts marijuana scene knows Valerio. And anybody who's in the marijuana scene beyond the borders should know Peter because he runs LeafWire. And LeafWire, Peter, you're in the process of raising some money for LeafWire. Isn't that correct? We are, yeah. We just started a crowdfunding raise on Seed Invest, uh, which for us is super exciting because it's the first time we've done a, a, a public fundraise like that that has a much lower minimum that anyone out in the public can actually get involved with, and you don't have to be an accredited investor. So that's that's one of the beautiful things about the Reg CF is it allows uh, anyone to kind of get in and invest with a company like Leafwire. Cool. What is that minimum investment, Peter? I'm, I gotta, I'm interested. So uh, according to SEC uh, compliance, uh, I can't share, I, I can share that we're actually a little over 50% of the way raised of what we need to reach the, the minimum level. Okay. Uh, so it's going really well. Uh, in order to see the, all of the financial numbers and valuations and minimums and stuff, you can go to seedinvest.com. Uh, and and see it all there. Unfortunately, I ca I can't talk about it um, on no a in, in a in a sure. way like this. And what a was record that again, Peter. A seedinvest.com. Seedinvest.com. We'll hopefully get that up on the screen for anybody who's interested. Yeah, come <laughs> check it out. There's there's a ton of videos about Leafwire. We, we we did an interview with Montel Williams. Uh, we have a bunch of testimonials up from all of our members. So come check it out. You can, everything you ever want to know about LeafWire is, uh, is, is available. That's great. Did my video make the cut? I think so. I'll have to go look. <laughs> we, we sent in, we actually got about 25 of them. Uh, Seed Invest picked about 10. So I, I think it is up there. Okay, cool. Great. Uh, Valerio, like, we got to ask you a question. First of all, we know you used to be with Vicente Cedarberg. Now you're out on your own. Uh, how is that venture going for you? Uh, it's great. Um, I, I, I enjoy it. Vicente Cedarburg is a great place with a lot of great people. Um, you know, during COVID, it just made a lot of sense to me to sort of go out on my own. Again, I, I, I had VGR Law Firm before and, and sort of starting it back up just made sense for me. So that's what I'm doing, but it's great. I mean, I love working with host communities to site cannabis businesses. You know, I'm really sort of a true believer, uh, anti-prohibitionist. As a co-author of Question 4, that ended prohibition in Massachusetts, it's been something that I've worked with. Uh, so it's, it's going great. You know, I started doing this in California 
too long ago to mention, uh, you know, and uh, worked with folks that really paved the way uh, for, for the cannabis industry, folks that, you know, paved the way with their liberty. And now uh, happy to continue to try to represent people in the industry and, and move it forward by getting state and local licenses. Larry, do you do any work on fundraising with your clients? We do. It's the hardest part. I mean, fundraising and finding properties are really the two hardest parts of, of this business, without a doubt. Any, have you done any exposure to the crowdfunding method? No, I have not. I don't know if uh, plant touching businesses uh, can do crowdfunding. You know, Peter might have more insight to that than I than I do. Uh, but no, I have not had any businesses that are actually plant touching uh, that I know of that have done uh, fundraising uh, with crowdfunding. Yeah, and uh, Valerio is 100% right. Um, because it, it is a Reg CF is an SEC uh, federal uh, federally regulated type raise, uh, plant touching companies can't take part in it, unfortunately. Uh, there have been tons of uh, uh, non-plant touching companies though that have taken advantage of it. And there's a variety of different crowdfunding platforms and uh, Seed Invest, the one we're using, for example, I know one of their bigger successes was with uh, Hello MD. If you, mm -hmm. uh, if you remember that company, they raised I think over $3 million on, on Seed Invest um, using the Reg CF uh, but but you're right. Uh, it's right now it is limited, and uh, and a lot of the companies that have seen success have been kind of like the cannabis tech companies um, sure. uh, in, in crowdfunding. So what kind of what avenues did you look at before you decided on going the crowdfunding route? And and what why did you choose that one over what other any other alternatives you had? Um, so we we have raised money the more tr traditional way with a with a Reg D fundraise, which is where it's only accredited investors. And that tends to have a higher minimum, usually 20, 25,000. Uh, so it does limit the number of people who can be involved if they don't happen to be an accredited investor. Uh, so we have raised money in that way in the past. Uh, we were really attracted to the, uh, the Reg CF fundraise since we are a public facing company and we have a lot of members, you know, we're up to 36,000 members now. Um, we have a lot of people uh, who are active and engaged on the platform. And we wanted to give everyone the chance to kind of uh, own a piece of LeafWire to, uh, if, if they, if they want to come in and invest, give them a chance, which they may not have been able to if they weren't a credit investor. Um, the, the other part of the crowdfunding platform that's kind of exciting for us is, you, obviously you have a much larger volume of people uh, who invest than in a, like a Reg D type fundraise. So if using hypothetical numbers, if you get a thousand people that invest, you automatically have a thousand ambassadors and kind of cheerleaders who are out there supporting you, um, talking to their friends about you. And those, those people could become your best users, your best customers, your best advocates. So it's kind of a side benefit in addition to just raising the money is that you're actually getting a, a huge number of, of ambassadors who are out there promoting you. Yeah, I remember that for many years ago, uh, I went to work for a company that was um, in the equipment finance business and they were raising capital. And I remember the, uh, the, the CEO indicating he liked everybody to own stock because the more people that own stock, it was basically, basically what you're saying. There were more advocates for the company. 100%. Yep. So yeah, just was... for, you know, I'm, I'm one of the trainers for the state social equity program. And one of the things I tell the, the students in the class is you definitely have to have 
Well, you should be on LinkedIn, but if you're going to be in the cannabis space, you have to be on LeafWire. So for those who don't, aren't familiar with it, take, take a minute and tell us what LeafWire does. Sure. Uh, so we built LinkedIn, or LinkedIn, LeafWire. <laughs> we, we were intending it to be similar to a LinkedIn type platform, but 100% for the hemp, cannabis and hemp industries. Um, and it's, it's a place for the community to uh, connect with each other, uh, to share news, to promote events, uh, to uh, announce new products, uh, send each other messages. Uh, people connect just like they do on other social networks. We've actually had over 700,000 connection requests sent across the platform from one member to another LeafWire member. Um, and, and the stat that I find even kind of more engaging or interesting than that is over 40% of them have been accepted meaning that we've created over 300,000 connections uh, since we launched the platform with people who previously uh, had not known each other. Now, I've, I've found LeafWire to be great when you go into a conference or some sort of, or, or any type of industry gathering where you're going to have people from multi-states, it's a great place to find out who's going to go and who's going to be connect and how to connect with them. Yes, de definitely. And uh, we, we're, we're getting busier every month. We're actually up to our monthly active users are about 25,000 right now. Uh, and that's, that has been growing consistently since back in January of 2019, we were at about 5,000. So we've grown 5x in terms of the number of people that are actually coming onto the platform. Uh, and that's so similar to our member growth. We were back then we had about 4,000 members uh, about, about two years ago and now we're up to 36,000. So we've oh. had about 7x uh, member growth uh, since we started. I remember when we met, you were at 6,000. So that was about yeah. two years ago. And uh, you've done a great job. And back then, I remember the elevator pitch was LeafWire, a LinkedIn for weed. I mean, that really was the simplest way to explain what the model was. Um, I want to ask Valerio, um, how do you guys set valuations for companies? Is there a formula? Is there a, a um, an anecdote you could give us about how you set uh, valuations for how much companies are worth? Well, I mean, again, one of, one of the most challenging aspects of this uh, is setting valuations. Uh, do you, uh, if, it depends on where the company is along the way. So obviously a company that has you know, no licenses and simply uh, an LOI on a property is worth less than a company that has a binding agreement on a property uh, that's properly zoned. Then uh, you move up from there to local permitting. You move up the, from there to state licenses. Uh, you move up from there to actually being open, uh, depending on the jurisdiction, if you're open for retail uh, versus cultivation. You know, I mean, right now in California, given that it's harvest season, you have cannabis going for 600 bucks a pound. In Massachusetts, it's still north of $4,000 a pound. Uh, so the different license types in different jurisdictions make a big difference. Um, but I've seen valuations for companies that have uh, what they call provisional licenses in Massachusetts, uh, local uh, site control, uh, local approvals uh, valued at, you know, by independent valuators, uh, by, you know, nine million bucks, uh, which I thought was pretty high. Um, but, you know, that's, that can be the, the value of a company. You, you know, it, it's not a typical, you know, 3x revenue model plus the value of your assets. Uh, it, it just depends really on the jurisdiction that you're in and the stage in the process that you're in. 
when you're starting out, you know, it's just sort of a dream. And there's so many hurdles between the idea of getting a cannabis business open and actually opening that it can be quite challenging. And raising money too early can be a big problem too, right? Everybody would, you know, if it costs $6 million to build out 25, 30,000 square feet of cultivation in Massachusetts, because our economy is booming, if you get all that $6 million in the bank on day one, although you might be nice to see that money in there and rely on it, if you're accruing interest at 15 or 18% on $6 million for the 18 months or two years until it takes you to get open, that interest uh, that's accrued will just crush you by the time you're actually open. So, you know, you want to really be thoughtful about your raise as well and, and how you structure it. Uh, more, you know, more conventional construction type loan that you draw down on, uh, convertible notes. Uh, just you really want to be thoughtful about your raise as well, in addition to how you formulate your valuation. One of the things I'm working on with a client right now is actually trying to put together a valuation matrix with a bunch of different companies so that we can plug and play uh, these different things that I just mentioned into this matrix and pop out the other side a number. And then we can take that number and shop it around. So it's something that we're working on right now. Uh, but you know, you, you need to sort of get the Wall Street folks to buy in on it uh, so that, that you, it can have some substance more than just a lawyer. No. So okay. you were mentioning how it's a harvest season in California, $600 a pound out there, but it's 4,000 a pound back here, right? That's primarily because you can't bring it over state lines. Let's assume the MORAC doesn't get past the Senate for whatever reason, but the incoming administration takes marijuana off the, the Controlled Substance Act schedules and just fully deschedules it because they don't need an act of Congress to do that. That's the, right. uh, the signature of the Attorney General, if I understand right. right. How do you see that impacting in interstate commerce? So um, if cannabis gets descheduled uh, or rescheduled, even to schedule two or schedule three, I don't think that's going to have a huge difference on Massachusetts, particularly some other states that maybe uh, are a little more, you know, uh, liberal people think of Massachusetts as its ulti ultimate liberal state. But I call it, uh, you know, progressive puritanism um, and people freak out about cannabis in Massachusetts. And so uh, I think that similarly with liquor, uh, you'll still have the robust state licensing and the requirement of independent lab testing and the oversight that the Cannabis Control Commission performs on cultivation, product manufacturing uh, with that independent lab testing, I think will continue. And I don't really see any time in the next I don't know, five years at least that we're, can't, Massachusetts is going to be accepting can, cannabis grown outdoors, excuse me, in, you know, in Humboldt, uh, just coming across state lines here, uh, no matter what happens uh, with scheduling or rescheduling and whether that happens uh, through Congress or not. But if they legalize it at the federal level, can the state actually stop out of, out of state product from coming in? I mean, I would think that would be a run in conflict to the Commerce Clause. Well, I mean, similarly, similarly with alcohol, uh, that you can you can potentially bring in small amounts for yourself, but you can't come in and bring in alcohol and sell it in Massachusetts without a license to do so. And that's really what we're talking about, mm -hmm. uh, not not small amounts for yourself. So I, I can I continue to see the oversight that the Cannabis Control Commission has and these individual municipalities have uh, staying strong for a number of years to come. Nope. That's going to keep the prices high in the Bay State. 
It sure is. I, but, you know, look at the, the tax rate and whatnot in California. It's the price of cannabis for just an eighth of flour in, in California isn't any cheaper than it is here. As long as it's all tested, I'm very happy with it. I, I you know, I'm, I certainly understand that the illegal market exists. It's flourishing because at least now they know the prices that they have to undercut just by using a little Google search and getting online and seeing what the prices are at the various legal dispensaries. Uh, the whole idea of legalization, I think the big picture was to perhaps have that illegal market go straight and become legal. I have not seen any evidence of that yet. Do you guys think you're going to see that? I'll let you take the first crack at that, Peter, if you'd like. <laughs> um... That's I, probably a better question for you, Valeria, I think. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, honestly, it's been a failure of the way the program was rolled out in Massachusetts. You know, as a co-author of the ballot initiative that ended cannabis prohibition in Mass, it was absolutely one of our goals uh, was to um, bring down the black market, right? So we had independent lab-tested cannabis, cannabis that wasn't filled with pesticides, that it wasn't moldy, uh, that wasn't, you know, sold by, you know, your corner drug dealer who also had, you know, Percocet, Oxy and cocaine that he was offering, he or she was offering, right? And so that was sort of the goal, uh, but it hasn't worked because the price is so high, right? We have an, effectively a 23% sales tax uh, on cannabis off the top, plus the, the incredible cost to actually get into the business uh, that needs to be earned back. And so, um, much like economic empowerment and the social equity program that uh, there was a lot of lip service paid to, the attack, the attack on the, you know, the unregulated market, you know, I don't like the word black market necessarily, the unregulated market uh, has been a total failure. And, uh, and, you know, we still have a long ways to go before we can actually bring that into the hands of the regulated market. And that has a lot to do with price. So Valeria, I've talked to some of the un unregulated, unlicensed dealers who, who uh, they take in their orders electronically and they home deliver. Because one of the arguments I've been making to municipal officials who are worried about home delivery is it's already happening. It's been in your community for a long time. And if you don't know it's there, it shows you how well it runs. And that's not even when it's running regulated. When home delivery gets up and running in Massachusetts, do you think that's gonna have an impact on the unregulated market? You know, maybe some, uh, I mean, the home delivery, the home delivery license type, which the, there's three year preference for social equity and economic empowerment. Um, I, you know, I had spoken with Jimmy about this uh, a few days ago. Uh, really, it, the, the cost to enter that, get one of those licenses is still extreme. You still need to have a brick and mortar to, st to store the wholesale cannabis that you produce. You need to secure that brick and mortar. So you have to fill out all, follow all the security requirements. You need to get local special permit site plan review, reviews. So you need architects and engineers. Uh, you need counsel. The regulations are incredibly, you know, voluminous and confusing. You need to have a, like basically a tricked out sprinter van with two people driving it around at all times. It's, you know, it's half a million dollars on the low end to get one of those licenses. So it's not like we're just opening up, uh, 
a whole new license type that people can hop in on uh, for the next three years and really knock out uh, the, the, the retailers that exist now. So I don't think that it's really going to really hurt the unregulated market as much as it, maybe it should or, or we'd like to because the, the barriers to entry uh, for that still exist. Now, it's nice that the Cannabis Control Commission has eased up on the application and renewal fees, but that's only a couple grand. You know, it's just a drop in the bucket. It's a nominal, it's a nominal discount when it costs you, you know, half a million dollars, seven hundred grand to open on the low end, and then you're paying two employees to deliver an eighth of cannabis. And so it's, uh, you know, it's nice, but I still don't see it making that much of a dent uh, in in the problem that remains. You know, I think you you could look at a California as a model that has delivery, and that hasn't done anything to, you know shrink the black market there, which I think most people think is three times the size of the regulated market. So, um, yeah, so I, I, I would agree. It's, you know, it's actually, an inter- it's an interesting topic though, because uh, uh, Colorado, it just started looking at delivery again. Uh, we, we've been recreationally legal for six years and still don't have delivery. Uh, I, I, I'm not even sure what the mindset is that has prevented that from happening, but we're finally again talking about it now and it's up for discussion. So, uh, we, we Colorado may finally get delivery for the first time. Well, I know in Massachusetts, I mean, we originally had five commissioners. We will have five again. We're down to three right now. Uh, but four out of the five voted against the law that they were regulating. Right. It's sort of like, you know, the current cabinet and the, that the White House appointed, you know. Uh, so uh, and so when you have folks that are regulating something that they that they didn't really like in the first place, you know, uh, delivery, I know, was a big problem for some of them. And I've spoken to them about directly, um, you know, the, 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 the concept that somebody could just buy a bunch of cannabis, store it in the back of a, a van and sit in the middle of Boston, wait for calls and then shoot over and deliver it, which would be the efficient way to do it, uh, is not allowed. And so that, because that's not allowed, we're not going to have it, uh, you know, be a, an efficient option for delivery, unfortunately. Well, imagine if we got to the point where it, it's like that and you could put somebody on a scooter and they're running through the streets of Boston, getting to people's homes and dropping it off. I mean, right yeah, now, the, the, the way we used to buy cannabis back in 1992, you know, in California, you know, but but that that or, or earlier. Uh, but that certainly, you know, Massachusetts is 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 regulating it. Thoroughly. And, and, and there's a lot of positive to that, too. I, you know, sometimes it comes across like I'm bashing the commission and I'm not. There's a, a lot of positive to what they're doing, because what somebody like me, I, I'm a professional. If I if I was to get cannabis, I want to get it from a dispensary because I know that it's independently lab tested. I know it has no mold. I know it has no pesticide. I know if, you know, if it's a card, it doesn't have vitamin E acetate in it. You know, I know if it's, you know, if it's an infused, an edible or some other infused product, you know, and somebody I I love is eating one, you know, if if I'm sharing it with my wife or whatever, I I know that we're eating something healthy. And so for me, I'm all about the regulation. I just think there's, there's pluses and minuses and, and push points where, you know, we can ease off on portions of it. Peter, can I ask you a question about um, your own membership? And and since the ballot questions were approved by uh, five different states, have have you seen a spike at all in your membership growth more than what you've normally seen? Uh, You know, we've continued to grow during the the pandemic uh, all along at a a pretty strong pace. So it's, it's not necessarily different than it has been. But, you know, I think right now online uh, tools and platforms, you know, things like Zoom, things like LeafWire, 
uh, are, I think, super important right now more than more than ever, just because uh, because everyone's at home, people can't meet in person. Um, one one interesting thing we have seen though is that um, we used to be about 50 50 uh, in terms of how people access LeafWire, whether it's via mobile, phone, or desktop. And now mm -hmm. we're at about 80 20 uh, that are on on a, a, a computer versus a phone, oh, which wow. you know, which makes a lot of sense. You know, right. many fewer people are going anywhere; they're not traveling or they're not leaving their house. So more people are hunkered down in front of their computers now than ever. And that means they're probably approaching it for like a, for a more thoroughly professional reason as well, as opposed to just kind of like flicking through it on their phone. But they're, when they're looking at it, they're absorbed with it, you know, uh, it would seem to me. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's true that you can do a lot more on a computer in having a bigger screen, uh, ha having the ability to kind of like see, see things more clearly, bigger images, more text. Uh, than on mobile phones. So I, 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 I would agree that people using things on a, uh, a, a desktop are, are likely able to get a lot more functionality out of it. Yeah. David? <laughs> Back to me, okay. Yeah. This is your training. Come on, this is your training. So the, the, I guess we, we're, we're now into talking about the delivery. I, I think the... Um, um, I'm trying to think of how to put this into a question. This, I'm, so I'm very involved with a lot of teams that are trying to get delivery up and running in Massachusetts. And, and the, while it sounds like a great concept and hopefully a number of them are gonna get licensed, what they're running into with established players who are playing very hard and it's basically side agreements that we're either, you'll either not show up and we'll run your operation for you you know, you'll have 51%, but we got full operational control. And when the three years is up, we get to buy you out. So you'll stand there like a shill. Have you run into much of that, Valerio, or you can't comment on it? Well, so, you know, as far as I can tell, and it, when there's a, there's a law and somebody sees a gray area, I always think that's a black area, right? And I think that the, the spirit, and certainly when the new regulations come out, the, it, the, the fact is that the, uh, the economic empowerment applicant should not only just be a 51% shareholder, but they also have to have a, le a significant level of control over the business. And there should not just be a, a stand-in for the business. And this goes back to sort of the difficulty in fundraising uh, for uh, any, any one of these cannabis businesses in, in Massachusetts. And so, and so how, how does that relationship work? How do, you, how do you create that relationship between the folks with the money and the folks with the, with the preference for these three years? And a lot of that has to do with security, right? How are you gonna secure that loan? And when you think about how you're gonna secure the loan, you can't secure it with the license because the, without, without, the license is non-transferable without permission of the Cannabis Control Commission because of all the background checks and everything else that goes into it. So you secure, you secure it with the property. Uh, but the property has to be, you know, built out with, with secure, with actual security. Uh, it has to have a climate controlled vault in it. So uh, the, the lender will get security on that property. But you, can't, but you also can't secure it with the cannabis product itself, right? Which frequently the inventory is a large part of what, you know, what the loan would be secured for too in the, in the event of default in a typical business. And so finally, you know, you secure it with cash flow receipts and bank accounts. So those are the ways that uh, uh, somebody who wants to invest 
in uh, an equity uh, applicant who has that three-year preference for one of these wholesale delivery licenses to manifest it and make it real uh, is able to do so. But uh, when I work with uh, those who want to invest and just use somebody as a straw person, I just tell them that's not a good idea. The Cannabis Control Commission will see right through it. I mean, um, you know, in the last year or two, we had these multi-state operators who wanted to invest in Massachusetts and were basically chased out of Massachusetts. And they weren't even trying to use the folks as straw, as straw people. They had legitimate contracts with them that were fair market value under cannabis terms, and they were still chased out. So I think these the contracts that people have uh, with uh, the economic empowerment applicants that have those three years that reflect terms like that, I think the Cannabis Control Commission is going to see right through them. And uh, I don't think that they're going to be well received. And ultimately, uh, they're not going to be awarded those licenses. Hey, let me put you on the spot with a, a question you may not want to answer. And if you don't, I understand. But let's assume that one of the current operators who's, who, who has to be suitable to hold a license gets caught playing those kind of games. What do you think the commission should do about that? Just slap them on the hands, let them go, find them, suspend it, yank their license? So I feel like the one thing you can do, so the commission gives you a lot of ability to amend your application. You have problems with your application, they send it back with a request for information, an RFI. They say, fix this, fix that, fix this. It's not like the early days of the Department of Public Health when you would just get kicked out of the process uh, for who knows what reason, right? Uh, the way that you can run afoul of the commission nowadays is by being dishonest with them. Mm -hmm. So if you're caught red-handed being dishonest with the commission on a material term, then that's the kind of thing that, yeah, there should be some consequence. I don't know about being kicked out of the process because I think the commission likes big fines. You'd see, you've seen over the last year, plus you know these half million dollar fines, uh, for different companies, quarter million dollar fines for different companies. So I don't know if completely being removed, but if you're going to be dis straight up dishonest with the commission on a material term, then I do think, you know, a substantial fine is probably the remedy. But that being said, I feel like the commission should probably hire an independent group that can evaluate an independent group of business people that can evaluate these terms and figure out where they represent real fair market value terms. Because I remember during the whole multi-state operators trying to invest in smaller businesses when they were based, all their money was basically chased out of the Commonwealth. They were offering fair, reasonable terms. And the folks that were making that decision at the commission didn't have the business sense to know one way or the other. So I feel like we, they should actually and, and people at the globe who are writing about it didn't necessarily know. So I feel like they should hire an independent third party to make these valuations and it shouldn't be so political and reactionary. Uh, and that way you, they'd be able to stand out of it, say, hey, we hired this group, they figured it out and let's let them take the heat for it. And that way there wouldn't be, you know, the issues that we had over the last couple of years. And we would know that that what actually the, any sanctions that actually happened were based on were based in truth and reality as opposed to just perception. Sure. Didn't they I do know. that with Citroen Cooperman? They hired, I believe, they hired the, the the about the 25th largest accounting firm in the U.S. And I thought they hired them to take a look at the applications to determine where the real ownership is and whether there's any violation of the ownership limits. There was there was some there was some level of that, but I never communicated with them. Yep. All right. Hey, you know what? We're up against the uh, half hours. They say both you guys have been great. Peter, 
once again, how do people find out about your offering? They can just go to your website. I mean, I got a, I got the newsletter, so that was I'm obviously a member. But uh, how would someone who isn't a member sign up for LeafWire? Obviously, just go to the website, right? Yeah, if, of course. I mean, if anyone who's not a member, we'd, we'd love for you to come join the community. Just come to leafwire.com. Just a couple of easy fields to fill out and join. Uh, it's completely free to join uh, and create your profile. Uh, and for anyone who is interested uh, in, in the fundraise, uh, I would encourage you to go to seedinvest.com. And you'll see uh, uh, several different companies down there. They're fundraising. LeafWire is being one of them. And uh, there's in a ton of information there. So come, come check it out. Yep, you're right. right up there on the front page of Seed of um, of Seed Invest under the yeah, we're, yeah, right now we're the I think the uh, uh, the fourth one on the right, like we're right on the homepage there. So just go to seedinvest.com, and there is a discussion board on there as well, where anyone who wants to ask questions that, that I monitor. So anyone that wants to ask questions can post questions there, and people can uh, ask to reach out to me personally as well. It has to be approved by Seed Invest. But anyone who has questions can post them right on there and we'll try and answer them as quickly as possible. Great. Fantastic. And it looks like you got about a little over two months left for anybody who wants to take advantage of this. There you Correct. Go. So uh, for Peter Vogel and LeafWire, thank you so much once again. Good to see you, sir. Valerio, always a pleasure, even twice in one week. Uh, and for those who don't know, uh, Valerio and I are on the, this week's In the Weeds with Jimmy Young, my regular podcast. And you can listen to that on all our social media outlets that are out there. But we have to uh, quickly take a break. We'll come back and we'll have more lawyers. And Valerio, I'm going to go out on a limb thinking, I bet you know Blake Mensing and Walter Sullivan. I, I do. Excellent lawyers and great people. I know they're going to have a great talk. All right. There you go. Thank you so much, Valerio. Right. We'll be back with more of Cannabis Chat after Thanks, this. Guys. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye.